So every Sunday we had to wear white, preferably white dresses, but some girls wore like white, like all white Nike shorts. And we would go up to a place called Chapel Hill. And it was like a very Protestant ceremony, but it was still like, like sermons were given. I had to do a sermon twice where like a white choir robe kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and then we all had matching ribbons in our hair. They did, they did light a cross on fire though. Sweet! Oh. But like, well, it was at night and we were like sitting by the lake and then on the other side of the lake, they like, they're like, and God will be with you. And now we will ceremonially burn this. Um, well, for the first time, that has other connotations. <laughs> yeah. Like people who wear all white. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. And yeah. there was a lot of a lot of cultural appropriation. Uh-huh. Like when we got there, we were sorted into tribes. Oh. Cool. And they would the tribe leaders would wear the like headdresses. Yeah. At the time, I was like, oh yeah, this is normal. And now I'm like, uh uh-uh. uh. And so, <laughs> and at the end of term, we would all get tribe letters. Um, and there was the, the Tonkawas and the Kiowas. Two actual tribes that oh, had yeah. nothing to do with this camp. So at the end of term, we got letters for our tribes, and you would string them all together. And so I have just like a line of K's. No, <laughs> no. Chase no. no. That, I, that I pin my riflery medal. No. No. no, and everyone asks, like, why, why do you have a line of K's? I'm like, camp, 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 camp. <laughs> Don't ask. <laughs> we got on a horse trail that was like up in the Texas hills, like. Um, and they called it like the grave trail or something. And apparently, it's just like a pile of rocks that they, they ride you past. But apparently, it was like a bank robber in the Wild West got like shot and by his brother and buried there with the gold, supposedly. And oh, Ravo the of. Indian. Only Ravo the holy ones. It was just your catch all spoopy monster. And there was a uh, Ravo the Indian. If you went off trail, you see his glowing eyes and trees. Or, uh, <laughs> Certain stupid shit would show up on the front porch of your of your uh, cabin if if Ray was displeased with you, which was just again counselor hazing us. Yeah. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And and everyone blood. has the different stories of oh this happened to my brother. This. Mister telling you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again and what our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. Thanks everybody for joining us today. I do want to mention that we just wrapped up our first season of Audio Dime Museum, our experimental historical storytelling podcast. It's a great time to check it out. Also, if you're looking for a good tongue twister, you can try saying that 10 times fast. Hey, I did that first take. Or through the magic of editing, we're never going to tell. We want to encourage everyone to reach out to us on Twitter. You can find us at Just a Story Pod. Also, we want to invite you all to rate and review us on iTunes. We actually had a Pause Go Read It prize for our 25th episode, and we have just mailed out Mr. Ed Gein's story to one of our listeners, so good luck with that. <laughs> You're just as disturbed as Samantha. Great. Yay, murdery murder friend. Hi. I want to thank Maggie James for titling her review, Sam's Voice, because it kind of made my day. It was a five-star review, I just want to say. And my new favorite iTunes Raider name is Wellington Wigglesworth. Thank you, Wellington Wigglesworth, for your kind review. (laughs) But, you know, back to the story at hand. Today, we started with a campfire story. Campfire stories, it just has such a nice connotation, right? Like, it's automatically spooky. It is, to me, the definition of holding the flashlight under your face. You know, yeah. and making the scary... Crackling fire. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And out in the dark and outside and... I grew up in Boy Scouts and going camping. And so camping and campfire stories are a big part of my childhood, as they are with, I think, a lot of people. Well, they weren't so much with me. We just called it the woods and going outside. I lived in the middle of nowhere. There were not enough people in the area to have a Girl Scout troop, even if we wanted to. Y'all went camping there sometimes. Yes, we did. And I did mean things to my friends. I was not a nice camper. Everyone else would be telling campfire stories, and I would go outside and act like I was being brutally murdered and scare the shit out of everyone. That really happened. No, that really happened. How old were you? I was like 10. (laughs) 
10 or 11, maybe. Um, it starts early. Yeah, it did. Uh, I went outside and I acted like I was going to be silly and like try to scare everyone, hammed it up. And then I was like, what was that? And then started like actually freaking out and being like, guys, let me back in and acting like I couldn't get back in the tent and stuff. And then I faked my own death and scared all of my friends. And they were still kind of friends with me, which is weird. Like I said, small town. Had to be. Had to be for my sake. Uh, Maybe the only place I could have grown up. (laughs) When I was in Boy Scouts, I was part of the Order of the Arrow. I thought you weren't supposed to talk about that. We don't talk too much about it. Is it like Fight Club? It kind of is. It's a real like Native American themed organization. And we had like ceremonies around campfires where we would dress as Native Americans. Looking back, seems super racist. <laughs> or maybe like just white elitist. I it's don't very know. noble savage, you know? Like it, it it's kinda is. yeah. Nothing like appropriating the culture of a people that you've, you know, put on reservations. And, and we hundred percent did looking back. <laughs> but at the time it seemed magical and mystical exactly yeah you know campfire stories have been part of our civilization since before there was a civilization i think that's probably accurate since since there was fire right and you know a funny thing and this is immediately what i thought of when we talked about doing campfire stories is a book i had when i was a kid about early man and i don't know if this is still true (laughs) But it talked about... I should have looked it up. No, where's the fun in that? Why Google when you can speculate? That's right. That's Mark Maron. And so the probably one fact that sticks with me from this book is they talked about how we developed buttocks, like fatty tissue buttocks, because we sat around campfires at the end of the day. I don't know if that's true or not, but I like it. It might just be a story. I might. That must be why my ass is so big, because I really like stories. <laughs> We've solved the riddle. Kim Kardashian must love some stories. <laughs> she must sit around watching soap operas all day. <laughs> well, that may or may not have science behind it. Not the Kim Kardashian thing. That's science. The caveman <laughs> thing. Yeah. I was able to pull up some interesting studies that are actually science? Actual science. Okay, uh, fun. One's is anthropologist Polly Wisner, and she did a really cool study where she went out and stayed with the Bushmen of Botswana and Nambia. She spent 174 days, like half a year with them, and she recorded their conversations throughout the entire day and night, looking at what was in these conversations. What are we talking about during the day whenever we're doing our work-like things versus at night? Which I want to commend her for learning those languages and going out and staying there for six months like that's really badass let's just give her props yeah that's that's pretty hardcore it's like some old school anthropology Mm -hmm. yes do you think she had a whip I don't know if she had a whip, but she was definitely doing craniometry uh, when they weren't looking. I'm sure she's measuring their skull circumference and things. So in these daytime conversations, she found that three quarters of it was related to work or gossip, which is kind of what we do every day. You know, when we're at work, you pretty much just talk about work, you might gossip, you might bitch a little bit. But at night, these conversations were more related to singing dancing, spirituality, or enthralling stories. Well, that's certainly what we do. That's all we do. (laughs) But she had just a great quote. It's kind of long. We're going to read it. And she said, Fireside gatherings are often, although not always, composed of people of mixed sexes and ages. The moon and starlit skies awaken imagination and the supernatural, as well as a sense of vulnerability to malevolent spirits, predators, and antagonists countered by security and numbers. Body language is dimmed by firelight and awareness of self and others is reduced. Facial expressions flickering with the flames are softened or in the case of fear or anguish accentuated. Agendas of the day are dropped while small children fall asleep in the laps of kin, whereas time structures interactions by day because of economic exigencies. By night, social interactions structure time and often continue until relationships are right. Forgers make use of daytime efficiently and nighttime effectively. I don't think it's limited to foragers. I really do think that this is mirrored in every strata and form of society. Daytime is for working. Nighttime is for not working. Even if you're engaging with your horrible reality television, you are locked in conversation. You are locked in, you know, they're not talking back, but you're picking up on stories. You're 
telling yourself a story before you go to sleep, even if it's about Kim Kardashian. Right. We are obsessed with his stories. We're not obsessed with Kim Kardashian that's seeming that way in this episode. <laughs> we stopped talking yeah, about Yeah, we're going to have to. I'm kind of getting a weird taste in my mouth. But no, she does extrapolate from this, and it's pretty easy to do that, that this kind of interaction around the fire is what shaped our culture and gave us, you know, our aptitude for storytelling and for songs and this kind of interaction. I think it is interesting that she pointed out that sitting under the stars and moon, there are a lot of philosophers and scholars that talk about that ability to see the moon and stars has giving us this feelings of being small. And I don't think it's just being small. I think she touches on something else that's interesting when she mentions being vulnerable. Definitely. Because the expanse does seem greater. You are not able to guard yourself as effectively. No, you're 100% right. Edward O. Wilson, who is a charming (laughs) scientist who's written a ton of books, he wrote one called The Social Conquest of Earth. That sounds epic. Yeah, he talks about eusociality. What? What? I'll explain, don't worry. This is the idea that you have a level of organization among animals where individuals are altruistic and cooperative. So it's not something you see in all groups, and it's seen, especially in how he talks about it, because he's a big studier of, like, ants. Of course he is. What else would Edward O. be doing with his free time? Basically, ants and people. But he kind of extrapolates the two. It's really interesting how he kind of pulls things together in his work. But yeah, but it's not something that's seen in in all groups so you have ants and insects and you have some other higher order animals but then of course we talk about people the idea that this originally really comes from is that you're going to try to protect the nest and you can see that campfire campsite home site you got a flashback a few millennia or that, think of the walking dead as the nest yeah if you want to set this in context and think about it in terms of human beings i think that your options are to go way way back and think about the bushman or you can just think about the walking dead and let's be honest that's a really good looking cast of characters so let's think about the walking dead instead can we maybe let's do that sure i mean leopards versus zombies Not that they're fighting. I was like, really? (laughs) Where? Where is that happening? Sign me up. Okay, so Bushmen have the threat of leopards coming to eat them, whereas the Walking Dead, the Rictatorship, has to worry about zombies, which I think really leopards and zombies are are quite formidable foes in either case. Just like in the Rictatorship, you would have these groups of people and they would start to have a vested interest in that group because you need to support each other to kind of develop this group uh, and and protect yourself. Right, and it's more advantageous uh, in terms of securing rations for yourself, protecting the young, and group living for human beings who have evolved a large mental and intellectual capacity is much more advantageous than going out alone and eating berries see into the wild. You won't let me see that. I know I won't let you see that because I think you'll go. It says go into the wild. And then you die. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) You totally die, Jacob. Like you said, you develop this big intellectual capacity and this is really where society starts to develop around the campfire, around these campsites when people start to have these stable home-like areas. And that's when we start telling stories. Also, of course, information. And these supernatural stories are kind of what develops into religion. So through the stories, we're able to reinforce bonds within the community. We're also able to encourage altruistic behavior through creating mythology that encourages that. And you're also establishing your group. Because if you have this religion and your God or whatever thinks you are the chosen people, yes, Mm -hmm. then that makes you and your group who are now bonded better than everyone else. Gives you street cred. Sure. But only personal street cred. Because the other group thinks they're better. But obviously they're not because they're not talking to the same person you're talking to. Well, they have the flying lasagna monster and it's so much better. Than the flying spaghetti monster? For sure. If you ask them. It's great for creating in-group loyalty. Exactly. So by drawing these groups together, you're developing a society, developing religion, developing culture, and sharing information. 
which is very important because since we have the intellectual capacity to learn skills without having to go out and figure it out every time, we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. We are capable of having the wheel explained to us. So it's important that someone does that. So we say all this to just point out how important something that we see as almost like a kid-like activity, campfire stories, are. They are the basis of civilization. That is a huge statement. How do you feel about that, Doc? I'm going to stand by it. Drink your wine. Okay. I I think we might be a little partial to stories being really important to society. Fine. A skosh partial. I don't know. I would say anyone that reads the Bible would argue that those stories are pretty important. Or the Quran. Or the Torah. Right, but they're taken out of the context of oral tradition and campfire. They're made into institutions. But they were... I know, that way. but nobody thinks they were. Everyone thinks that they were divinely inspired. Fine. Even if we are a skosh partial to stories, I think that they are more important than the average bear would deem them. They've been trivialized largely because of their association with summer camp. Yeah, kids going to camp. But yeah, that's the first thing I think about. When I think of campfire stories, besides the butt thing, is going to camp when I was a kid and sitting around the fire and telling stupid, silly, scary stories. Which you obviously got over. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. You let that go and moved on with your life. I was thinking about it the other day when we were talking about this episode, and I was like, but why do we go to camp? Why is that a thing? Like, why is that when you mention camp, everyone knows what you're talking about and everyone has at least some like cursory experience, either like it's a three day weekend retreat or whatever. They've gone and stayed in a cabin and done something resembling camp. Yeah, a lot of people have. It seems like such an arbitrary idea that you go out to the wilderness and do this thing in the summer. It's strange, but it's very ubiquitous in our culture. So naturally, I did a little research. What I found was that summer camps really came into prominence during the 19th and 20th centuries. And there was a great fear among the yokels, the people, the gentry, that we were moving toward a very modernized culture. And this was terrifying. Much as it is terrifying now when I think about my children having the internet. So wait, this seems familiar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was a concern about modern culture yeah, these around were, the turn of the century? Yeah, like, um, kind of like hipsters. I was thinking our last episode. Yeah. Oh, that too. Very much like the hipsters are now, I think these people were. Where they were like, we have to get back to our roots and express ourselves more naturally and eat organic food. They got very nostalgic and they wanted things to go back to the way they were when they were, you know, so much more simple back before the 20th century. Light bulbs. Light bulbs. I mean, stand light bulbs complicating things. So they decided that they needed to set about some official measures to kind of revitalize American culture. And there was a drive to capture the primitivism of the American wilderness and really harken back to that pioneer spirit and really venerate the noble savage. Is this why all the camps are named after Native Americans? Yeah, I kind of think so. I think it's like that thing you were talking about with a like really playfully racist thing that was happening. Speaking of playful racism, there was also a big concern at the time about a white masculinity crisis. That's still happening. I know. It's interesting because people are worried that, oh, they're just being wusses. Yeah. And all I can think about when you say like white masculinity crisis is the men's rights movement. And that just, yuck. I I feel like this was not that organized and they didn't have Reddit. So it probably wasn't as scary and horrifying. I'm hoping. Yeah, people were worried that we were getting too urban and that their children wouldn't have the experiences they had of being these brave pioneers out in the wilderness, which, like, by the way, not a lot of people had. It was very imagined, much like the conspiracy among gay artists to take over America. In our last episode was this idea that we were losing those pioneer values, that real communion with nature that we'd felt. I think everyone just read Ralph Waldo Emerson and felt like they had actually had that existential great wandering eyeball experience and wanted their kids to have it too, but they hadn't. What makes me think of Thoreau? And when we went out to Walden Pond. Oh, God. And the ants. Him and the ants, too, Jacob. Ah, ants. Ants. And I didn't realize that he was, like, right by town. and Like, in a cabin with a bed and a door. And, yeah, you roughed it, babe. I get it. The row. 
He's no Emerson. But anyway, there is a picture of me having coffee with the bronze statue of Thoreau where I put a styrofoam Dunkin' Donuts cup in his hand and a single tear formed in his eye like the Indian. It's true. So we decided as a nation that in order to capture our primitive, formidable, self-reliant roots, we would take our children and send them into the woods. With a little supervision. With a little supervision, but basically not. Only the loosest of supervision. We would encourage them to dress up like Indians and tell scary stories and learn to craft and canoe. And that would fix everything. And obviously it did. I mean... I enjoyed it. Well, I know you did. That was just Tuesday for me, but whatever. You were out canoeing and hunting and crafting. I I was out crafting for certain and sure. And I, I fished and things... And we had horses, and we killed chickens in our yard and stuff. It was it was fairly rustic. I think I have some rustic cred. The unforeseen consequences, I believe, of taking a bunch of young people and sending them out at these times when they're developing a sense of self and really forming their identity is that it becomes sort of a rite of passage. And I don't necessarily think that the adults who saw the need for them to go connect with nature saw the need for them to have this isolated identity forming experience. Definitely not at the outset. No. What happens when you take a group of people and you put them through an experience that's set apart from everyday life is an anthropological phenomenon called a caminita. What this is, is it is a group that's formed out of sharing a transitional experience. So you'll see things like boot camp, very commonly cited, or sports teams uh, where there is any kind of hazing ritual or training camp. Also with the hazing rituals, you see things like fraternities and sororities, and then you even see some types of higher learning where there's a certain amount of prestige to it, like a medical residency. Yeah, that's something that's frequently cited as an example of this, and there's lots of research into that, because it's a high-stress experience with a small group of people, and you do have kind of rituals you go through, and there is almost like a hazing type of procedure that has become not as bad as it used to be, but it's definitely still present. And I think that the key factor to look at all of these experiences and the running theme, I guess, through all of these experiences and what makes them unique is that you begin the process as one thing, and when you're done, you are another. It's like a transformative process. And you all share in that weird in-between space. And no one outside understands it. Right. Like if you've not been through medical residency, no matter how much Grey's Anatomy you've watched. I know you binged on Hulu. It still doesn't count. Scrubs is the closest. It actually is. And most accurate. Yes, from everything I've seen. But it does not count. If you know all the songs, maybe it counts from the musical episode. Otherwise, doesn't. It creates an exclusive bond between the people who are going through the experience together. And is a very intense bond and it's something that even people who've already been through the ritual will recognize in younger counterparts. So if you're dealing with your grumpy old, so if you're dealing with your grumpy old attending, like Dr. Cox, yes, if you're dealing with Dr. Cox, he still likes you more than he likes his mail carrier. Because you have that shared experience. Even if he doesn't let on, he remembers and it gives you shared ground. Yeah, there's that bonding of shared experience. But it will always be more intense with the people that you occupy the liminal state, the place between stations with, than outsiders who've been through the same experience. So when you ship a bunch of young people off, like in various stages of puberty, and they go away and they learn how to canoe together, apparently... Much like med school. <laughs> yeah, there is interesting anthropologic research on camping and how it's exactly what you said. There's this autonomous life of kids that develops in the society that develops in this short amount of time. And they use all the elements of folklore to kind of subvert that adult society that exists outside of this space. And so they can use, like, their bodies, nicknames, hazing rituals, pranks, jokes, secret clubs. All of that is related to this folklore that develops 
including campfire stories, in this group that binds the group together. Right, so they're getting rid of the the societal norms that have been put on them by adults in their everyday life and forming their own norms and social codes to reinforce the bond that's being created by the transition they're all experiencing. When I was a kid, let me tell you about my camp experience. I went to a Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp, which is hilarious now because I'm not very fellowshipy and I'm probably not very Christiany. Not very athletic. I'm not very athletic. So I don't know what I was doing there, but I went. When I filled out my form for camp, I was honest about the level of physical activity that I enjoyed doing in a given week. But I was also skinny and like 12. When I went to camp, because I was honest on my form, when I got to my cabin, I was the most athletic girl in my cabin. (laughs) So we would have all these athletic competitions that we were supposed to do because it was supposed to be an athletic camp. So were you like the mathletes? Yes, I was. And so they would always make me do things like the long distance run. Like when we all had like an event we had to do or whatever. And it's like, somebody's got to go run three miles for our cabin. I guess it's going to be you, skinny little girl. And they'd send me out and everyone else would stand there with their soda, like cheering me on. And I was so mad because I just wanted to sit on my ass and drink soda. <laughs> so I didn't feel a lot of bonding with my, with my cohort. And I think it's because I was too busy running. <laughs> it was awful. So don't have that problem now. No. This is where your, like, hate of running comes from? Yes! I hate running. If I'm running, you should run too, because something is chasing me. I think you will be eaten by the bear. Not in that cabin. <laughs> so when I think of all of these camping experiences that were going on at this time, I can't help but think of a psychological experiment. Honey, that's true when you get out of bed in the morning. You're like, oh, I put my feet on the ground. That reminds me of a psychological experiment. Let me look it up in the DSM. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and so, Freud, Freud, Freud. This is not Freud. Oh. He has an even better name. Alas. So this social psychologist, Muzaffar Sharif. So Muzaffar Sharif had developed a theory called the realistic conflict theory. Meaning he was married? Well, he was, actually. And she helped with this research. Her name was Carolyn Wood Sharif. And so this theory, it was developed right after World War II. And so people were very interested in why the hell did this happen? You know, how could the Nazis exist? How could we get to that point in society? So someone sat down and wrote for 500 hours and we found a solution. I don't know if we have a solution, but it's a really interesting idea. His idea was related to group conflict. And that having these groups competing for resources developed negative prejudices and stereotypes as a result of this competition. And it's interesting to think about that and I remember that back whenever the Nazis were able to come into power, one of the reasons was that Germany was in an all-out... Economic just, depression, yeah. like awful, terrible, no good, very bad. Because they had to pay reparations for the First World War. If you don't get it right the first time, try, try again. They said, we shall do World War again, the sequel... And someone's like, let's just call it World War II. And they're like, brilliant. The sequel's never as good. But it really was. Now they are, though. They used to Hitler was the original decent sequel. Now bring this up because he did a um, really ethical experiment. Wait, I'm sorry. There's no ethical way to test the idea that groups form negative prejudice when competing for scarce resources. There's just not. I'm sure someone has attempted to do it. But it wasn't Muzaffar. In 1954, he did a field experiment. With living human beings. Um, with 22 12-year-old children. With children? Okay. So he took 22, they're all around 12-year-old boys, and they're all wasps. So they're all white, middle-class, Protestant, two-parent household. And that's for scientific reasons, So that they'd all be kind of like equal. Right. So it wasn't like they would be able to gang up on the kid who is obviously different. Had all of that and he brought them out to a Boy Scout camp at Robbers Cave State Park in Oklahoma. So he split them up into two groups. Okay. This is going to go well. So two groups of 11. And they did not know that each other existed. 
And they had a week of bonding. And they decide they're best friends. They develop cultural norms. They develop a little mini society. They even, mm. you know, name their group. One group's called the Rattlesnakes. Woo. The other group are called the Eagles. It's like 11-year-old boys named these groups. They were all these nice and bonded groups. And then the researchers or the counselors came and told them, hey, you know, there's another camp and we are going to have a competition. So this is when the research goes into the second stage, the competition stage. I feel like every middle school teacher in the entire world is banging their head against a wall going, I could have told you this. (laughs) They developed all sorts of contests for them and there were rewards So there were medals and trophies, but also individual rewards like pocket knives, which to a 12-year-old boy. Four-bladed pocket knives, Coolest thing ever, right? Yeah, like what's cooler than a single-bladed pocket knife, a double-bladed pocket knife? What's cooler than that? One with four. Whenever they told the campers about this, they were, were able to witness the social norms that had developed in the groups already, you know, the rattlesnakes, we're the best. We're going to win everything. We're going to, you know, we're going to go and take the baseball field. And they went and, like, made repairs to the baseball field and, like, planted their flag on the mound. And so that anyone that came close to the baseball field, they were going to get. <laughs> know that this is our territory. I mean, they basically peed on it. Well, they were 12-year-old boys. Yeah. They probably did. <laughs> they would have these competitions. One big competition, they played a baseball game. The Eagles won. They burned the rattlesnake's flag. Oh, my God. Then the next day. This is day, fighting words. Yeah. yeah. The next day, the rattlesnakes went and they tossed their cabin and stole things. That's a vandalism. Yeah, it began as just taunts, turned into these kind of things, and then physical fights. I think I've read about this before, but I've never thought of it as the robber's cave experiment, which I think is actually the moniker that it is most often. That would be the title adapted in your psych book. Well, I always called it the fucking Lord of the Flies experiment. Oh, it so is. Yeah. Piggy's head's on a stake. Piggy's head is not on a stake. <laughs> the pig's head is on a stake. Piggy does not have a good go of it. No, he doesn't. <laughs> and I and like I think I collapsed him with the actual pig in that's my the, reading. That's the... The idea, yeah. 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 English, right? English, yeah. yeah. English major. Yeah. <laughs> but sure. I just read the themes literally. Shut up. So they even set up other little situations to really create this hostility towards the groups. Like they had a picnic and one group was kind of made late to it. And by the time they got there, the other group had already eaten all the food. I'd be hostile. Yeah, exactly. You uh, would be awful. I'd you be- you were the worst hangry person in the entire history of the world, besides our children. Yeah, well, get it from me. <laughs> yeah. And so after this, they've developed these two groups. There's this bonding experience between each group. They had bonding before, but then they went into this situation where they had a reason to bond more. It formed closer bonds to the in-groups and made you hate those out-groups. Okay, so it reinforced the bond between the camps that had previously existed right. while reinforcing the disdain of the other. Right, and so after that uh, four to six day, everywhere it says four to six day. It's like six, eight <laughs> black men. <laughs> like, I don't know why. It's not a definitive date. But after the four to six days of competition, they had this cooling off period. They called it the reducing friction period. One of the first things they did was they asked the kids about how they felt about people in their group and the people out of their group. And it'd be kind of what you expected. They loved the people in their group. They felt the people out of the group were shit. Shit. That's what they wrote. It probably is. <laughs> 12-year-old boys. Okay, fine. Fair. As a previous 12-year-old boy... The e- the rattlesnakes are awesome. The eagles are shitty. The eagles suck. And then they did some really interesting things. They... Oh, I think they'd already done interesting things. But even more. Like, okay. more interesting things. They went ahead and developed some more situations for the people who have to come together and work together, the different groups. Okay, so they created situations in which the eagles and the rattlesnakes had to function as one one cohesive group in order to overcome obstacles. Right. So they had like one situation where the water tank broke and so they had to get together and fix it. It was not like 
preordained or it was orchestrated. Preordained makes it sound like divine providence and it was not. <laughs> they were kind of acting godlike. And another time they had like the truck delivering the food got stuck in the mud. So they all had to work together to pull it out of the mud. But it showed that these groups that previously hated each other enough to physically fight, to steal from each other, could become allies when they're working towards a goal. Like us in Russia. I guess. <laughs> well, we were allies during World War II because yeah. we all hated Hitler. Uncle Joe Stalin. But no, as long as we all have somebody to hate, we can all be friends. Exactly. <laughs> They really should have just introduced a third group who was even worse. Oh, and yeah. then definitely, then everything would have been peaches and ice cream and rainbows and candy. This sounds like you should do. Don't tempt me. But, you know, I mean, just think of this just makes me think of my experience going camping. And you just really do form a bond with all these other groups of kids. And you do just one of those ways of sitting around telling stories around the campfire. I think it's funny because there are a lot of things now that have kind of been co-opted into the realm of campfire story. You know, it's no longer like creation myths or whatever. Like we have a very specific set of things that we hearken back to. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that the Friday the 13th movies have caused us always have these murderers out there that are stalking kids at camps and they just got out of a a psychiatric facility they escaped and they're on the run and you hear it on the radio or there's like indian magic or like (laughs) these poor kids that were here 10 years ago died and no one knows who killed them um, have you been reading my mail? Yes. I'm really not happy about how much you spent on Amazon last month. <laughs> I had to read a lot for the show, okay? It's for a good cause. No, I ask because I have a story for you that involves escaped convicts murdering kids at camp. Okay. Mystical shamanistic powers. Okay. An unsolved cold case. So this is like a story y'all told up in... The backwoods whenever you were a kid? No, this 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 really happened. This is a true story. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll believe it when I hear it. Okay. Well, I don't know if you will. Oh, it's who told you this story? Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash is not your spirit guide. Yeah. How many times do I have to tell you this? Johnny Cash came to me in a dream, and he said, you must remember unicorns and carousels and magic. That's a Johnny Cash song. It is, and it's also the beginning of this documentary I watched on YouTube where he narrated it. Really? <laughs> yes, really. So there's your first unbelievable fact. I found a true crime documentary that Johnny Cash narrated. And it was one of those great Unsolved Mysteries era crime documentaries where they did the thing where people are just vil- visible in silhouette. Why did they do that then? And why is that not happening? <laughs> I don't know, but I love it so much. It's my favorite. So, like, my head was exploding from happiness. It was a horrible case, but I was just like, I cannot believe I have this, like, awesome trifecta of Johnny Cash narration, crazy supernatural elements, and true crime. I just can't believe this is happening to me. Well, I'm waiting with bated breath. Okay, now I'm not going to do this as well as Johnny Cash did. Sorry. Sorry, I can't do it. So if you want to watch this amazing documentary, it's called... Someone Cry for the Children? Okay. I think. Just Google Girl Scout Murder. Well, I think you just gave this beginning away. Google Girl Scout Murder. Don't do that. The NSA will be bugging you like they bug us we have a lot of helicopters fly over i'm just saying (laughs) this is a true case that happened in oklahoma at a girl scout camp on june 13th 1977 that's our anniversary i know how romantic (laughs) sweet sweet. i remember yeah i didn't so at camp scott in oklahoma near locust grove On June 13th in 1977, between 2 and 4 a.m., three Girl Scouts were murdered at camp on a dark and stormy night. Was it really dark and stormy? It really was. So the girls were between 8 and 10. There were three of them. Their names were Michelle Gosset, Doris Denise Milner, and Lori Former. They were in the most isolated tent and the most isolated section of camp. So it was thought that whoever did this to the girls had been scoping out the camp for a while. Now, around 6 a.m. the next morning, there's a counselor who's walking to the showers and she trips over a sleeping bag and she looks down and realizes that it is a dead camper. Shit, this sounds like a movie. It really does. 
she calls law enforcement and she was already creeped out because someone had gone to pick up donuts before camp opened. And when they opened the box that was supposed to have donuts, one, it was empty. So I'd already be pissed. Oh shit. I'd be irate. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But then inside of the box where the donut should have been, there was a note that said four girl scouts will die on the first day of camp. Are you serious? Yes. So she was already freaked out. And then she had heard her back one day and gone back to lay down in her cabin. And she heard this weird scratching at the door and she thought it was a person. So she calls out like, who's there? And no one answers. So she's like, it must be the dog, the camp dog. And so she alley and the dog like sits up on one of the chairs in the room by her. And she's like, oh, shit, it's not Sally. And then the dog starts, like, growling and barking at the door. And she opens the door and there's no one there, of course. Because it wouldn't be creepy if there was someone there. I don't know. I think it'd be pretty creepy if someone was there. It can go either way, right? And then they had gone out to inspect the tents before the girls got there. And there was a six-inch slash cut into one of the tents. Oh, Lord. Sounds like a movie. Right. So before anything went wrong she was already kind of on edge and then she trips over one of the girl's bodies so immediately she calls law enforcement they're there about an hour and a half later because this is a very isolated area and they discover that there are three girls they're all bagged up in their sleeping bags and moved about a hundred yards out of the tent how were they killed one uh was strangled and two died of blunt force trauma two of them had been completely covered and like kind of bagged up in their bags and then one of them was exposed they were able to discern that the girls had all been killed in the tent and whoever was there had tried to wipe up using mattress covers and things so immediately everyone knows this is a catastrophe, tragedy, really terrible, and they want to find the guy who did it. So what, what did they do with all the other girls that can't? Well, they didn't tell them. <laughs> okay. They sent them on hikes and things like that, got them out away from everything that was going on, and then hurried them onto buses. And this happened the first night of camp. So they'd been there less than 24 hours. They hurried them onto buses and got them back to Tulsa. And they called the girls' parents who had been murdered and told them that their daughters were dead, that they'd been in an accident, but not that they'd been murdered. I guess they didn't necessarily know yet. I think it was pretty obvious. They were, like, bound. So they find these three dead bodies bound up in really mysterious, strange, terrible circumstances. So mm-hmm. I'm guessing law enforcement just calls everybody in. Basically, yes. They even called in the Wonder Dogs. Is that like a superhero team? Yes. No, it's a group of highly trained tracking dogs that were brought in specially for the purposes of finding the man who hurt these girls. So these dogs were valued at like between ten and $20,000 each. They're famous. They solved like eight-year-old cold cases and stuff. And they fly them in from Pennsylvania. They put them on the trail. This is not just local law enforcement you know they're getting the fbi involved the oklahoma state bureau of investigation is getting involved it's a really big investigation right off the bat so they bring the wonder dogs and do they track them down (sighs) um no they did this thing where they would be hot on the trail and then they would just stop and start turning in circles and looking up and barking that's weird. It, it makes was, no sense. Normally, if a dog loses a trail, it'll backtrack. They didn't do that. They started looking up and barking and turning in circles. So he flew away. Apparently. It was the only logical conclusion. Did they find anything? Well, on the scene, they found a flashlight. And inside of the flashlight, there was a piece of newspaper that was used to help the battery connect. And they also, around camp, found four pairs of women's glasses. It's random. That had been broken. Initially, they said that they thought they had fingerprints on the bodies. And they thought they had semen present. And that was just going to solve everything. So these reports started coming out from different agencies. And they were obviously conflicting from the beginning. But then a very problematic report came out. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Oklahoma was the end point on the Trail of Tears. So there are very large Native American settlements in Oklahoma. There was a rumor going around that a local Cherokee medicine man had put a curse on the dogs. And these wonder dogs, days were numbered. Oh, no. Yes, they were going to die. And this got leaked to the press, and people were very concerned. Which, incidentally, I know that sounds like 
made up and crazy. But one of the dogs died within the first two days of searching from heat exhaustion. And then the other one like broke his leash and ran out in front of a car. Two of the three highly trained dogs that were well taken care of just died. Yes. One of them committed suicide and the other one died under mysterious circumstances. So we're starting to pull in some really interesting elements to this movie. I mean, story. So as long as we're pulling in interesting elements, I would like to introduce you to Harvey Pratt. Harvey Pratt was a member of the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. He was also a Native American. He may still be living. I'm saying was. If you're alive, I'm sorry, Harvey. But he is Cheyenne and Arapaho. So is he like a tracker? Kinda. If this was a movie, he would be a tracker. He does do a little tracking later, <laughs> okay. but we're not there yet. Don't spoil. So... He's distraught by the rumors that are starting to swirl and this case is starting to have kind of an eerie feeling and people are starting to associate some Native American religious elements with the case. And so he goes out and he decides that he needs to cleanse himself and he does like this smudging ceremony where he burns piles of cedar and sits in the white smoke to cleanse himself, you know. As all investigators do. He then takes a cigarette that he's broken the filter off of because he doesn't have a pipe and you're supposed to smoke when you cleanse yourself. And, you know, a couple of other guys come out and he offers to share this medicine with them. So these are like other police officers. And they're all standing there and they get the news that two squirrel hunters have found this cave that looks to have been lived in, and they believe that there's a connection with the case. So as they're cleansing themselves, they find this information out. Yes. So my buddy Harvey and the rest of the investigators go up to have a look-see in this cave, up in the Cooks and Hills, which are interesting and significant in their own right. A number of fugitives have hidden for long periods of time in the Cooks and Hills. Now, I don't know that much about Oklahoma's terrain, but normally when I picture it in my head, it's very scrubby and plainy. Apparently, there's a good bit of Ozark Mountains in Oklahoma. Yeah. And these are kind of the foothills. And it is apparently a very, very good place to hide if you do not want the law to find you. People like Pretty Boy Floyd and Bell Starr and the James Brothers and the Dolan Gang, all kinds and manner of people have hidden out here. So they go up looking for the fugitive in the Cooks and Hills, which is apparently a time-honored tradition. And they go to this cave where he's been living. And they find the newspaper from the same publisher on the same day as the piece of newspaper that was used to fix the flashlight. Ah, so it matches up. Right. So they're seeing some connections. And they also find these two photographs. Now, someone makes the connection that this escaped fugitive, this escaped convict, I guess who is a fugitive, had made friends with a jailer during his stint in the pen who moonlighted as a wedding photographer, as most jailers do. And so he'd made friends with this guy and he helped him develop his photos. And they recognized that these were two of the photos that he'd helped develop. And so at this time, we get the introduction of the name Gene Leroy Hart. So they have a newspaper linking it to the newspaper at the scene. Mm-hmm. You got a photo that's maybe connected to this escaped convict. Do they find anything else? Well, you remember how Harvey was smudging himself? Yeah. They find evidence that the man in the cave had been doing the exact same thing right before they arrived. Interesting. So there are four little piles of cedar set up that have been burned in a similar fashion and a bunch of uh, filters broken off. Harvey puts it together immediately that this is a Native American and Gene Leroy Hart fits that bill too. So Gene Leroy Hart, this escaped convict was a Native American as well. He was. He's Cherokee. Okay, but what was he in jail for? Well, he was kind of a rapist. Kind of? Yeah, a lot, actually. Very much a rapist. His uh, victim survived and testified against him in court. He had a pension for raping pregnant women. He kidnapped two pregnant women and drove them out of town and brutally raped them and then put tape over their nostrils and bound their hands and covered them with brush and left them to die. So good guy. Good guy, but hey, kudos lady. She, and her name's withheld in all the reports I've seen, she, one of them freed herself and freed the other one and they both survived. 
So, and they're both pregnant. So y'all are awesome. And the interesting thing about that case is that he stole the woman's glasses and tried them on before breaking them and discarding them. Wait, didn't they find glasses at the scene? Right. Murder the Girl Scouts? Yes. So that's interesting. Another very tenuous link in this very tenuous chain of evidence to Gene Leroy Hart. Now, he had escaped prison twice. How do you escape prison twice? Well, they really don't know how he did it. There was no clear sign of theft, no obvious behind a poster leading to the sewer, nothing like that. But, you know, the other people who were in jail with him claimed that he was a skinwalker. So he was able to shapeshift. Yes. And they say that's how he got out of jail twice. Interesting. They announce the suspect and then they decide that they need to have a giant manhunt. And like 200 law enforcement officials volunteer and get involved. And this is 1977, you must remember. And this is kind of the height of the American Indian movement. So what's that? It is a, like, we're sick of your shit group of Indians. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. They like took over Alcatraz and things. Is that the same group? Yeah. They were very serious about not putting up with white people's shit anymore, which... I get, and it seems really okay to me. But anyway, so they get word that this man is Cherokee and that these lawmen are out gunning for him, and they send people out to oversee this posse. And so immediately, like as soon as he's announced as a suspect, as soon as it's announced that he's Cherokee, you already have pushback and like, y'all are just looking for a scapegoat. This is racist. You just want it to be him. You need somebody to blame it on. So... Already lots of tension, you know, like two groups of people who are convinced that the other one's bad, like Robber's Cave kind of. So they go back to the Girl Scout camp with this big group of men. They do another search. I mean, like the National Guard gets involved at some point. This is a huge, huge hunt for this guy. And he's out in Cooks and Hills wearing his lady glasses with newspaper and photos doing Indian medicine, apparently. Now his mother, Ella... May Buckskin, so jealous that name exists and I don't have it, comes forward and just point blank accuses the cops of planning evidence. What, um, what do they plan? The photos. Oh. Now, there is some evidence to support that because there's an evidence log showing that the photos were taken after his escape and they were in possession of the sheriff. Hmm. Very making a murder field. Yeah, this is like Stephen Avery vintage. So we're also introduced to a very fascinating character named Crying Wolf. So who's Crying Wolf? He is a Cherokee medicine man who is brought in as a consult for law enforcement. So wait, the Cherokee are all supporting this guy. Why is he helping the police? He believes that Hart may be guilty. He sought truth and it told him that he needed to be open to the possibility that that was true. During this time, the whole shape-shifting thing is gaining a little momentum. It's a very whispered-about thing, but people are interested. And so How could you not be? <laughs> I dare you not to be. So this is a conversation that takes place between Wilkerson, one of the investigators, and Crying Wolf. Wilkerson. By the way, Crying Wolf, do you know what a stagny is? Crying Wolf. No. Wilkerson. Well, let me tell you what I know about Stagney. I have heard that it's a great medicine owl, which sleeps under a cedar tree. I've also heard that Gene Hart has the ability to change himself into the Stagney. Personally, I believe this is ridiculous, but I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Crying Wolf. First of all, I will not discuss it with you, because that is something of which you should not know. Oh, shit. <laughs> Sounds like he is going to put a curse on Uh-huh. The belief in this transformation is quite prevalent. A great number of Cherokee people believe that a person can transform himself into another being. Whether they want to hide under a leaf, go into a rock, or whether they literally want to become an owl or any other animal. Wilkerson. Do you believe Gene Hart can do this? Crying Wolf. No, I don't believe he could. He may, however, use these legends to his own benefit. He is not the quality of person who could perform these deeds, but he could enhance his image by using terms and knowledge of the old Cherokee ways so that he may give an appearance that he's performing these deeds. Opportunity to use these tricks would simply enhance his image. Wilkerson, you're not going to talk to me about the Stagney, are you, Crying Wolf? Crying Wolf, 
No, I am not. Again, these are things you should not know about. There's no way this is not a movie. Oh my god, right? Let so, me go consult with the medicine man. That's he would like outside. only meet them outside after everyone had left the precinct and stuff. Like it was very like cloak and dagger. So does like, the shape shifting come into play anymore? Remember Harvey? Harvey Pratt. Yes. The man who was smudging himself yes. right when they found the cave. Yes. So Harvey has a brother who is a police officer, but the two of them decide that they are gonna go undercover on the chair reservation and try to get a sense of what might be going on with Hart and who might be hiding him and who might know something, all of these things. Good idea, right? So they're camping out one night and they're in the middle of the Cookson Hills and they have a little campfire and it's just the two of them. And so they're kind of on edge and a little bit more attuned to it than maybe they normally would be. But they're just lying there and all of a sudden... A cat falls out of a tree and lands on Harvey. It like scratches his face and then it runs away. Just randomly? Yes. And he said he always felt like that was Hart. Now Harvey at this time is also consulting medicine men and he's getting medicine for his bullets so that they won't shoot anyone who's not guilty and getting medicine to help him track and perseverance and all this stuff. So he's really embracing this part of his theology and he's providing very valuable insight to investigators who are not privy to this system of beliefs. As the investigation continues, strange things continue to happen. There was a private security firm that was supposed to be looking after the camp while all the investigation was going on. And they saw this weird shadowy figure, and so they went out to do a sweep. And when they came back, they found a Ziploc bag sitting on the front steps of their base. And in the bag were Denise Milner's shoes. Seriously? Yeah, they were labeled with her name and everything. So who did that? The killer's definitely still around. Kind of, it seems like fucking with them. And then the investigation continues for a long time, and they get wind that this man named Sam Pigeon, who is a Cherokee medicine man, is harboring Gene Hart in his tar paper shack. But he's not budging. Like, he's not going to cooperate with authorities at all. He's, like, even refusing to speak English. I love it. Yeah. It's so ballsy. I know. So they go after the medicine man's wife, and they start telling her that she has to tell them if Hart's there because the fathers of the murdered girls will come after her if she doesn't. It's a hell of a threat. I know, and I think it might have been pretty credible. She eventually rolls over on Hart, and they take a posse, I mean, like, in the most literal sense of the word, to go get him, and they get him from Sam Pigeon, the medicine man's house, and there was a great moment where Harvey says that, like, they've tackled him, and he's lying down, and he reaches over, and he, he taps Gene's foot with his foot to get his medicine back another fun thing about their arrest is when they get him he's wearing women's glasses hmm. so they bring him in an interesting thing has happened during the time that they were searching for him he's become a folk hero so did johnny cash have a song about him no johnny cash has a song about ira hayes which uh, is much better good one. <laughs> yes so they bagged their quarry they brought him in and they need to put him on trial so the first guy that was going to try him had to recuse himself. His name was Sid Wise. He had a good name. He had to do that because he'd made all kinds of deals for books and shit with like the media. So some shadiness. Yes. And he also allowed himself to be photographed in a Jean Leroy Hart for District Attorney shirt. And there are massive protests outside the courthouse. Very well organized. There's also a chicken dinner benefit to raise funds for Jean Leroy Hart's defense fund. There was also benefits for the girls, too. Yes. They, the Girl Scouts raised money to get together reward money to be offered to capture. Were so, they selling cookies? I don't know. Apparently, you can have cookies and justice or chicken and death. I don't know. I don't It's a hard decision. I know. I really like chicken. If, the, if it was Boy Scouts and they were selling that stupid popcorn, I'd know which hey. way I'd go. <laughs> Nobody wants your popcorn. Go away. I don't want to buy any popcorn. The investigation was so poorly conducted. I mean, as I read through this, it was just face palm after face palm. We've already mentioned the planning of the photographs and how that looked. And then there was a bloody footprint that was found, and it was like a couple of sizes too small to have been hearts. So the shoe didn't fit? 
You must have quit. Like, actually, the guy that defended him kept going, you can't shrink your feet. And that seemed to have been like the catchphrase of the trials. And this guy actually played football, too, and was like a big football stud. So he was kind of OJ before he was OJ. And I think he might have ridden a literal Bronco instead of riding in a white one. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm jumping here. But I'm, I'm seeing some serious similarities. It's just not a slam dunk case. So it sounds like the trial did not go so well for the state. No, I have to tell you, though, the man that tried the case in lieu of Sid Wise, do you want to know his name? Yes. His name was Buddy Fallis. Oh, Freud. I didn't. (laughs) We talked about Freud. Keep going. Hart became this really romanticized folk hero. And there wasn't a change of venue because why would he need it? The prosecution can't ask for one. So he was found not guilty. But I mean, he's still an escaped convict from rape, so... Does he go back to jail? He dies. Okay. And he dies mysteriously a few months later of a heart attack, even though he ran a few miles a day and like worked out all the time. Why'd he die? He had a heart attack. But did he? Okay, so actually Crying Wolf has thoughts on this. Let's go back and talk to Crying Wolf a bit more. I always like to go back and talk to Crying Wolf. Crying Wolf had prophesied that if Hart were guilty and he were acquitted, that God would have his final justice by taking Hart's life. Interesting. Maybe Crying Wolf maybe had something to do with this. Maybe. I mean, I'm not saying he did. Just burning a little cedar, maybe a <laughs> little medicine. A little medicine. Um, The sheriff, who was so terrible, also died of a heart attack around the same time. Very interesting. And Crying Wolf said that like, when he asked for the truth about the case, he was told that Gene Hart stands on the blood of those three innocent girls, but so the lawman. Well, this does sound so much... Like a scary story that you would hear around a campfire. I can imagine myself sitting at a Boy Scout camp and one of the counselors telling the story about how this Cherokee man escaped from prison and used his medicine and help from other medicine men to come and murder people and shape-shifting while he does it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like something that would keep me up in the middle of the night in my sleeping bag. Right, especially since you're being playfully racist. Yeah, if it was going to be at a camp, it has to have racism involved. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But, I mean, you don't need to worry about any of that. Your counselor would look at you and be like, but don't worry, honey. It's just a story. 